In a week of favorite liturgies, for me at any rate, I think my favorite of the Holy Week liturgies is Good Friday, the Good Friday liturgy, which may sound a bit odd to some of you. I think it has something to do with the fact that when I w went to seminary the first year, it was the first time I ever saw the solemn liturgy of Good Friday. And that was in the middle of all of the renewal of the prayer book and the new versions and the new rites. And so these great liturgies had been restored to the Book of Common Prayer. And to see them celebrated with such devotion and care among the members of the faculty uh, made a powerful impress on me. And it still does. So I think that may be one of the reasons why Good Friday is so uh, influential in my own uh, spiritual pilgrimage. What I have wanted to preach about since Passion, since Palm Sunday, as I mentioned to you, I talked uh, last Sunday about a pernicious, in my view, um, attitude among a lot of clergy and laity in the Episcopal Church and elsewhere, that in the great days, like Good Friday and particularly on Palm Sunday, they just don't want to read these Passion Gospels. They think it's too much of a downer, the story is too depressing. One of my colleagues said to me not long ago, it's a weird, awful story that no one wants to listen to. Right? Well, you know what? The cross of Christ, the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ is central to our self-understanding. And it has always been so for Christian people and for those in which they are in dialogue or conversation from other faith traditions, that this somehow looms large in our understanding of how God brings transformation, new life, uh, out of things that seem to be horrific. And I can tell you as a personal testimony that in my own life, it is often through the adversity and the suffering that I have gone through that the processes of maturity have been at their greatest. The maturing uh, that comes from this kind of experience. So what I want to talk about in my sermon today is what suffering is, to say some things to you about uh, how we might understand it, and then to say some things to you. I've been doing this for the last two or three Good Fridays. I'm fascinated with the doctrine of the atonement. And I want to say something about what it means and preach against a particular theory of the atonement that has become very popular once again in certain Christian circles. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Remember, I mentioned this on Palm Sunday, those people who have strong feelings about dwelling too much on uh, the violence and the difficulty of these passion narratives uh, in a sense have a point because a morbid fascination about this is not spiritually healthy. But it is also something that we understand people can have principled positions about. I'm not mentioning this or speaking about this to create some kind of a controversy particularly or a big fight. I know that the rhetoric that, we, that both sides can have about this can be divisive. Alan Jones uh, the recently retired Dean of Grace Cathedral wrote a book two or three years ago called Reimagining Christianity, How to uh, Keep Your Faith Without Losing Your Mind. 
And uh, here's something he said, uh, a quote that I have saved. An Englishman who was an expert on Eastern thought was touring Grace Cathedral in San Francisco a few years ago. On looking at the Spanish crucifix near the south doors, he unthinkingly said to me, why would anyone worship that? The crucifix is late 13th century and is very beautiful. Uh, Mark Bruce and I were talking about this this week, and uh, there's always a lot of votive lights burning by this crucifix, so it must be uh, a location of devotion for a lot of people. The crucifix is late 13th century and is very beautiful, a picture of poignant and deep love and sadness. I don't think he meant to offend, but I wanted to react with an equally crass question. Why do Buddhists revere that grinning little fat guy? <laughs> so, you know, that's what can get started here. And that's what we don't want, you know. Phyllis Tickle said in her book, The Great Emergence, that uh, one of the things, you know, in these hinge times every 500 years that Christians may need to learn is that, you know, when we have legitimate disagreements with one another, we don't start, um, you know, wailing on each other because we don't like the way it goes. And that's the part of this uh, that we need to avoid for sure. Alan Jones suggests, I'll read you another quotation a bit later, about an overweening focus on the suffering and victimization uh, of Jesus' sacrifice, and it is not healthy. And we don't, this is not what I'm talking about when I speak about the need to focus ourselves on these great narratives at least once a year. Suffering is the disruption of inner human harmony caused by physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional forces experienced as isolating and threatening to our very existence. As the deprivation of human good, suffering is inseparable from the mystery of evil. However, suffering and evil are not caused by God, the author of all good, but are inherent in the universe's natural processes and in the uniqueness of human freedom, in the misuse of free will that is the moral evil of sin. That's not my definition of suffering. It's the definition from the New Dictionary of Catholic Spirituality, a great, a great volume, a reference volume. So suffering has been understood by people as God's punishment for sin, or as a means of personal and corporate conversion. So when we think about what it's there for, there's a danger, of course, of overly spiritualizing suffering 
or focusing only on how you and I find the internal resources, the internal self-regulation to cope with suffering and not understand when these issues are raised and when we read these passion narratives that you and I need as we are empowered by the sacramental life and the church's teachings to work in the world to alleviate suffering. You and I, on a daily basis, should be engaged in the creation of a society where it is easier for people to be good. But you don't do that by saying, we just need to avoid any conversation about suffering. Sort of like many years ago when I taught Sunday school at St. Matthew's Church and in the old liturgy, some of you may remember that the Paschal candle went away on Ascension. You read the Ascension Gospel and you ceremoniously put out the Paschal candle because Jesus had gone So I walk into the chapel and there are the kids in the Sunday school and I say the Sunday after Ascension, what isn't in this chapel that has been here for the last 40 days? Ooh, ooh, the Paschal candle. And I said, yes, that's right. And why isn't the Paschal candle here? Ooh, because we don't have to think about Jesus anymore. <laughs> You know, that may be what we think about stuff. We just don't want to have to think about it anymore. Maybe like Scarlett O'Hara, uh, we'll think about it tomorrow. But on Good Friday and on Palm Sunday, we got to think about it now. But let's think about it in terms of the idea of suffering as a means of personal uh, or corporate conversion. We learn stuff through the adversity and we learn things from other people uh, about how they have coped. How do you think medical care would change in this country if your physicians would ask you when you have some illness, how have you coped with things like this in the past? What tools and resources have you been able to bring to bear internally to be able to rise to this challenge? Might just be an interesting question without merely saying, here's the ding, 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 this is what we do. Hard to know. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. If you read that in the Greek text, when they come to the word perfect, it is a word that does not mean perfect as you and I would think we have to become perfect to be spiritually whole or healthy. The word that is used for perfect is the word that means mature in the Greek language. I don't know about you, but mature is a little easier to understand than perfect. And so the process of suffering may then bring some species of maturity as we move through this and understand the suffering uh, and the adversity that we all go through. Remember the liturgical life of the church and these great rites of Holy Week, as Father Thomas Keating says, all of the liturgical year are the processes where each time we come together to worship, 
we encounter God's light, God's life, and God's love, and that God's light is understood as the wisdom of God and the practical wisdom that you and I acquire over time as we seek to understand how to learn from our experience, the accumulated wisdom in our response to adversity, the divine life is the empowerment that we receive from that maturing process, and the divine love is the power by which we can be transformed. And so at every liturgy that we participate in, we encounter these three things. God's divine light, God's divine life, and God's divine love. Well, uh, many years ago, I read a book uh, in seminary, and then later again, a little book by Alan Richardson, who is a famous English New Testament scholar, and it was on the atonement. And Dr. Richardson said this, the doctrine of the atonement is a theory. And there is more than one theory of the atonement. And so what I mean when I say this is that you are free to make up your own theory of the atonement. But somehow we have to think about what happened. When Jesus died on the cross, did it cause anything to be so? Or how are we to understand what it means? And so, here are some of the theories. Jesus' death on the cross was the rejection of Jesus, and God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. The theory of the defeat of the powers is that the principalities and powers put Jesus to death, and Jesus disarmed these powers and triumphed over them on the cross. The cross represents dying to the old self and being raised in a new way of being, and that is the way of Christ. The death of Christ is a revelation of the depth of God's love for us, even though we might not deserve it because of our sinfulness. And Jesus died for our sins substituted himself for us who deserved the penalty of death and took it on himself. This is the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. And it is the theory of the atonement that is now flying high in April again in evangelical circles both in the Episcopal Church and elsewhere. Alan Jones says, making God vengeful in the name of justice has left thousands of souls deeply wounded and lost to the church forever. And he's right. My view is of the cross, my theory of the atonement is what I, I've learned from Father Keating and through the contemplative outreach and so on. And that is that Jesus' death on the cross represents for humanity the death of the false self-system. And what that is is that we look in the wrong place for our happiness. And that has been crucified on the cross and now the opportunity for us to say we look in the right places for happiness. We look in the right places for what it is to find health and wholeness in some way. Eamon Duffy, who is a great English 
a writer on church life, a historian, says the cross is not some arbitrary demand of God imposed on a hapless victim, but a marker where human beings find themselves at the intersection of justice and mercy, time and eternity, death and life, all of which, of course, is the language of myth. But myth is the coin of religion which makes sense of our world by telling such stories. And the last quotation I'm going to read you, which is the one I think that addresses best this view that we ought not to be focusing on these kinds of things at all, is from the poet Czeslaw Milos. Religion, opium of the people. To those suffering pain, humiliation, illness, and serfdom, it promised the reward of an afterlife. And now we are witnessing a transformation. A true opium for the people is a belief in the nothingness after death, the huge solace of thinking that for our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders, we are not going to be judged. Oh, do we have to think about this? <clears throat> On Good Friday, we do. Because, you know, that's what it means. How do we cooperate with the divine initiative, which is that God loves, accepts, and forgives us unconditionally? And in the course of all of our cowardice, murders, greed, betrayals, we are unconditionally loved and therefore empowered to move through those ways of being and relating that are less healthy and to a place of health and wholeness. God's atoning work is a testimony of the fact that spiritual wholeness will not come without understanding that we must move through the adversity we all face in big and small ways. And when we do, we unite ourselves with a God who, is un who unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And that is the power of the cross. So maybe that's why we call this Friday good. Amen.